because it felt like I've got a second chance, there was an open-handedness, a kind of like, God, do your thing. This church is yours, it's not mine. It's, if this church fails, I'm okay with it. I'll be okay with it. Hello, and welcome to this week's episode on the Canadian Church Leaders Podcast. This is Jaden. Thanks for joining us. You are jumping into a sweet conversation. We are going back to back, releasing interviews with pastors from here in the Vancouver area. So today we're sharing the conversation we got to have in the Zoom room with Pastor Albert Chu. If you don't know Albert already, he is the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church, a multi-campus church here in the lower mainland of British Columbia. Albert has set out with his life to create environments and cultures that help others discover and grow in Jesus. And it's that passion that led him to plant the first tapestry campus in Richmond, BC in 2004, which means that Albert has been in the senior role of this community for almost two decades now, which is such an incredible example. Following that original plant in Richmond, the tapestry has since expanded and planted in a couple other hubs in the Lower Mainland by coming alongside declining churches. In addition to pastoring, Albert is also the director of the Center for Missional Leadership, which lives on the busy UBC campus in Vancouver and exists to equip leaders for God's mission here in the Pacific Northwest. And in this chat, Jason and Albert hit a number of different topics and plot points in Albert's story, including how Tapestry grew from a living room gathering to what it is today, creating churches that resemble the neighborhoods and contexts they're situated in, the cost of starting new communities, the grief that comes with these sorts of endeavors, but how they breed opportunities for discipleship. And the highlight for me personally came towards the latter half of the conversation, It's in the title of the episode, but Albert shares really honestly about what he describes as receiving a second chance to pastor. And he articulates so beautifully the contrast between his own posture and even his health in those previous years and the ones that followed. It was really impactful and he didn't need to go there, but he trusted us enough to share and we're so thankful anytime leaders like Albert have the humility to let us all into the real tensions leaders feel in the pastorate. So we honor you, Albert, and hope that those of you listening are as moved as we were during the conversation. Well, in a moment, I'm gonna hand things over to Jason and Albert, but before I do, here's our friend Rachel sharing about the wonderful work World Vision is doing to connect local churches to global needs. You might know World Vision for their work in child sponsorship. But did you know that they are currently serving in 100 countries and reaching over 6.6 million people in the world's most dangerous and fragile regions? World Vision, for more than 70 years, has embraced the vision to take action for every child. Most recently, their workers on the ground in Turkey and Syria, who have been there since 2011, have been responding to what's been the strongest earthquake in that region in over a century. They're distributing heating and food supplies to shelters alongside tents, mattresses, tarps, heaters, and ready-to-eat food. Last year, they responded to the Ukraine crisis as well and continue to serve over 650,000 people and 250,000 children impacted by the war there. And here's why this matters and why our team at CCLN loves the work of organizations like World Vision. We want churches in Canada to be connected to the needs of people around our world. And we believe your church, through a partnership with World Vision, 
can be meaningfully engaged in the work of the global church to serve children and vulnerable people. So we want to connect you to Chris from the World Vision team. Chris is the national manager for church engagement and would love to grab virtual coffee with you. You can get in touch with him using the link in our episode description or by visiting worldvision.ca slash churches to connect with your local World Vision Church advisor in person. If your church wants to feel prepared when crises happen, we know the team at World Vision is one of the best partners to have for your church. So please reach out to our friend Chris to learn more. Well, Albert, thanks for making time to hang out with us today. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Jason. Excited. I don't think we're f- I don't think we're far apart, are we? Like we're no. probably <laughs> maybe a 15 minute drive. Yeah, different are you parts in of the, the city. office at uh, Central Prez? Yeah, I'm on the corner of Thurlow and Davie in Vancouver. I'm assuming you're somewhere on UBC campus. I'm on UBC campus at uh, St Andrews Hall here in my office at uh, on the beautiful campus of UBC. Yeah, it's there's no place like it. I um, tell us for those that don't know, tell us about St Andrews Hall, and because sure. the context is this incredible University of British Columbia. Forty thousand students, residents, and then within that, there's some theological uh, colleges, institutions that has a cool story. So I'd love to hear about St. Andrews and the work you're doing there. Sure, sounds good. Uh, so one of the things that I've been trying to do, I've been at uh, the Tapestry Church, which I assume we'll talk about uh, for 18 years. And last year, I was thinking, okay, what's next for me? Mm-hmm. And so I began thinking about what succession plan is. And one of the things I was talking to a good friend of mine. And uh, he was saying, you know, if you break out your life into three comments, you know, three buckets, in the first third, you learn um, the craft of what you're doing. You learn to pastor. You learn to do what you need to do. In the middle portion, you start doing what, you know, you're supposed to do. And the last third, you begin to teach and Mm -hmm. equip and uh, disciple others. And so that has really resonated with me. I was like, okay, I'm a church planter. I'm a pastor. What do I do? And so that was when I was approached by St. Andrew's Hall, which is the Presbyterian Seminary here on UBC campus. So um, out of that, they started a few years ago something called the Center for Missional Leadership. And Mm. the goal of the center is really to educate and equip apostolic leaders and pastors for missional engagement. Mm. And so this just really stirred something in me. Okay, what does it look like to be able to kind of craft Um, programs, events, um, some kind of system and structure that we actually begin to equip laypersons and pastors Mm. for mission, especially in our context in Cascadia, because Mm. things are very, very different. And so, yeah, we've done certificate programs which lead um, laypersons. So churches come together, uh, like, for instance, we do this certificate program right now led by my friend Tim Dickow. Um, who um, we have about nine or 10 churches that come with four or five people, the pastor and four leaders, it doesn't have to be an elder or anything like that. And they begin to learn what it means to be on mission, mm. as well as they develop a project uh, for their neighborhood. And so it's those kind of little things just to, you know, open and enlarge in their eyes about what can be done for the church. And so, yeah, we're going to be maybe starting cohorts for church planters, 
We're thinking of doing events that kind of bring all of the church together to talk about important things like social enterprise and housing and the refugees and what the church is and doing that. So yeah, I'm, I'm really excited in this role. I've been here for a, a year and four months. And you know what they say, you're not supposed to do anything for the first six months of joining any, you know, or taking a position. And so now I'm starting to, um, after watching, I'm excited about some new experiments and some new things that we're going to run out of here. I want to, in a little bit, chat about how you're, you're navigating doing that while also leading the church and talk about tapestry before. I don't want to miss this. I, I was reading on the website for... Um, for the Center for Missional Leadership at St. Andrews right. Hall. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I think I got that right, which I'm really proud of myself for. <laughs> but listen, listen uh, you might know this, but I just thought this was so, I loved reading this. We are a community of scholars, evangelists, and missional practitioners committing, committed to witnessing to the risen Christ in the ruins of Western Christendom. Right. The missional theology we teach, this is the part I love, the missional theology we teach denies that church decline is the primary reality of our time. Come on. Instead, yep. we boldly affirm that the triune God is alive and working to reconcile and redeem the world. We are called to participate in that divine mission. And I think this is such a powerful thing hmm. because I'm like, like you, Albert, like, I think everyone listening has heard me say this before. Like I'm on top of the Barner research, the EFC research. Like I get it. The church is in a lot of parts in decline. I get it that there's, there's shifts in culture and engagement with church, especially under young, with younger generations. However, I love this. That's not the primary, primary reality of our time. Instead, we boldly affirm that the triune God is alive and working to reconcile and redeem the world. I remember John Erpberg one time recording for one of these conversations was like, the kingdom of God is doing just fine. Yes. <laughs> I love that too. Uh, and yeah, I firmly believe that. I just feel like the media, especially with just the death of the church and all that sort of stuff is overstated. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, and yes, the mainline church isn't healthy for sure. And a lot of churches are closing, but there's things happening. You know, there's discipleship that's happening in small groups. I think in many ways we have to change our ecclesiology in some ways that sometimes when we think of church, we think of worship gatherings as opposed to the people of God. And so that's one way of, uh, you know, it's important to gather. Don't get me wrong. But sometimes we um, do a mis uh, we, we mistakenly assume that church or uh, faith is equivalent to church attendance on a Sunday. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. I love that. I love that. Who who gets the writing credit for that? Was that you or is that Tim? Who wrote that? <laughs> I think Ross Lockhart probably wrote it. Come on. But uh, yeah, it's it's great. Yeah. And uh, it's something that. we certainly believe and want to lean into more and more. Oh, it's so special. Um, hey, tell us if, you, if you'd be comfortable. I'd love to hear the story of Tapestry Church. So just to give context, like um, in my journey towards church planting in Vancouver and living in the lower mainland, you know, big part of it was trying to listen and learn, like where's, where have there been new church plants? Where's God moving? And one of the things that kept coming before me through friends and different things was the work of Tapestry Church as a, as a, as a church plant um, in Richmond, but also as a congregation that was doing, um, I wanna say multi-site, but it's not quite like church planting within right. the umbrella of one, body but then also revitalization and so i think there's a lot of cool stuff there and so i just love it if you would 
take us back to sort of the part of your story that led you to sure. moving to the Lower Mainland and planting, and then uh, kind of the story of tapestry, which probably I imagine runs concurrently the story of your own growing in yeah. identity and your role and understanding what it means to be a pastor in this time. Sure, I, I would love to do that. Um, and I, I, you know, after this, let's talk about multi-site. I know that you wanted to talk about it because it's such a wide range in terms of how we structure sites. Yeah, because churches fit into that multi-site category very differently. So mm -hmm. yeah, I'd love to talk more about that. So yes, as you said, Tapestry, one church, we have four different campuses across the Lower Mainland. Um, I'll try to be brief. <laughs> so uh, we, we started this about 19 years ago where Richmond CRC, so the Christian Reformed Church denomination, uh, Richmond CRC was a 50-year-old church um, and at that time was under steady decline. Uh, once a thriving church of maybe 400 members, it had diminished to a size of 30 people, hmm. uh, all over the age of 65. The youngest person in the congregation was the pastor at the time. Serious questions, obviously, about viability in the future. So in the wisdom of the denomination, they decide, hey, why don't we plant a church in the same city, maybe even the same neighborhood, with the hope that maybe that this church would then one day take ownership and use of this building. Hmm. So lured from the cold tundra of Edmonton, Alberta, where I grew up, um, and good Asian food, and of course, Reformed theology, I joined the CRC. And <laughs> I think out of that, I, I really needed to know what kind of church I wanted to plant, right? Like you can plant any kind of church that you want to. And I really felt called and convicted to plant a church that was neighborhood orientated and ethnically diverse. And I think one of the reasons for that was just my upbringing and personal church history. Uh, my brother and I grew up as the only two Chinese kids in my Edmonton neighborhood hmm. and uh, in the early 70s. And you can imagine, you know, the prairies in the 70s, it was an yeah. up, were uphill battle in terms of racism and stereotypes. People generally, you know, would stay away from me because they thought I knew Kung Fu because I don't know, that's what, <laughs> that's what we do. Um, and I just experienced a lot of feeling like the outsider, um, mm. name called and so forth. And just, I knew that things could be different. At the same time, I grew up in two church plants that my dad helped start. And I started hearing all these stories from the book of Acts and that's my favorite book in the mm. Bible and just all this early church stuff. And whenever churches got started, whenever Paul came into town, instantly the churches became diverse. You know, different people, different ethnicities, ages and backgrounds started to gather around the gospel. So, for instance, reading about Philip and the story of the Ethiopian eunuch and Peter and his, you know, unclean dream and, and accepting the hospitality of Cornelius. I love the story of when he gets to Philippi and the first three converts of that church is this wealthy woman named Lydia. Yes a Roman jailer and a poor slave girl, right? Like, tell me yeah. that's not the gospel. And so all of that just really made me have this vision of having a diverse, almost parish model in the neighborhood for mm. the neighborhood. And going to Regent, it just, that 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 idea of church became even more mm. um, accentuated that, you know, you have this great revelation for kind of idea, all of God's people, you know, gathered around the throne. Well, that's in the future, but that's now, right? Already, mm. not yet. You know, you build the kingdom today. And so that's what I did. I um, graduated from Regent and said, whatever church I'm going to, I'm going to start doing that. And mm. I really felt con convicted to go start at the Chinese church. 
um, a Chinese immigrant kind of ethnic church because I realized that here's a place where I knew, you know, I'm fluent in the language. What would it look like to kind of move Asian churches towards being more neighborhood orientated, Mm. being more diverse? And um, yeah, at the time I started, uh, I was the pastor of one of the churches in Edmonton. I went back there, 700 people attended the church, and there was only one non-Asian in the congregation, hmm. which who I was married to. And uh, it was just hard. Every time I did something, it was met with opposition and pushback, like hmm. everything. It was just, uh, yeah, it was really hard. Uh, I remember one time I walked into the washroom, and there's the sign above the urinal, and it says something in Chinese. It was printed in large, bold print. And I'm like, okay, does that say to flush or Mm. to not flush? I mean, it's kind of important to know. And so I approached the elder board and said, we need to make our signs bilingual. Like not everyone who's coming in will be Chinese or can read Chinese. And so we may need to make a change. And so the response was, there you go again, Albert, making trouble. Mm. If you want to change the signs, you change the signs. Mm. And so, yeah, I... um, just just time and time again, things were rather hard. And so I was mm. looking to go somewhere else. And because I grew up in a church plant, when the CRC came knocking and said, hey, do you want to plant a church in Richmond? And remember, the CRC is, you know, primarily a homogenous Dutch denomination. So, yeah. hey, well, why don't I join that denomination and maybe from another way in of trying to make them also my, more diverse and so forth? So I started with 10 people in my living room. And uh, the first thing we needed to do was decide on a name. And uh, a lot of churches take on the name of the location of the actual street that they are found, right? So 10th Avenue Alliance is on 10th Ave. Broadway Church is on Broadway. Um, Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, and... I think for people, I'd love it if you could just give a little bit of a description of Richmond. It's it's an amazing city. Um, yeah. I don't know if it's the most diverse city in Canada. It is not, <laughs> but it's 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 a it's a very unique city. So I'd love. Can you just give us a little bit of the yeah, um, a little bit of a bit of like you know just a little bit of a window into sure into the city of Richmond. Yeah, what I have discovered, I've been there for 18 years, and when I started Richmond, you know, I do what church planters do. You do, you know, you look at the census, you walk the neighborhood, you see what happens and so forth. And I have noticed that Richmond, being such a Pacific Asian city, Mm. where you have these gigantic night markets that thousands of people stream to, and it has that flavor of, you know, Hong Kong or other places— and just very highly Asian that you'll drive down number three road and there'll be more signs in Chinese than there are in English, right? And so, yeah, very highly Asian. And so what I've actually noticed is 20 years ago when I landed in Richmond and really wanted to create a church for the neighborhood, I would say at the time it was 50% Asian, and that's across the board, Chinese, Korean, Filipino, and so forth, 50% other. So, Mm. uh, Anglo, Dutch, you know, we had a few um, African uh, folks that uh, lived close by that joined us. And so we were quite resembling the community where we found ourselves. Now, when you walk into Richmond, I'd say it's probably 80-20 that Richmond has increasingly become more 
um, Asian. Lots of immigrants have come in. Mm. Uh, I've even noticed that in where I live in my townhouse complex. My neighbors are very different. You know, a lot of the uh, previous neighbors have moved elsewhere, um, east mostly to the valley and so forth. And so, yes. Um, and as much as that can be disheartening in a sense like, oh, we're not as diverse as we'd like to be, still, in Richmond at least, we are um, exemplifying the neighborhood where we live in. Yeah, yeah. And so, I mean, you can't go wrong with that. I think there are a lot of churches that want to be diverse for the sake mm. of diversity, yeah. but in whatever context that they find themselves, that's not reality. So mm. I think a better gauge is not how many nations, for me at least, and my ecclesiology, I would love for us to resemble the neighborhoods of which our campuses are found in, to mm. not have commuters come in, but really be a church for the neighborhood with neighbors. Mm. And so, yeah, that's kind of um, always been in the impetus of our church plants to resemble the neighborhoods where we find ourselves. And so you yeah. start this, is it 18 years ago? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. In your living room. Like this is yeah. the real, this is the church planning story. And oh, then, yeah. And then give us some of the plot points that, because it's a very different picture now. Yes. But just walk us through it a little bit. Yeah. So 10 years ago, one of the first things we had to do was come up with a name. And um, back to my story, first Richmond CRC was unfortunately, so Richmond's on a grid and they have a lot of um, street names that are just given numbers. So our main drive is number three road in Richmond. That's sort of like our Robson, I guess, for the city. Yeah. And uh, unfortunately, the church was known, was found on number two road. So you can't really call yourself the number two church. It just, it doesn't. So you, there's, there's only a first Baptist. There ain't no second yeah, Baptist. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's just weird, you know. <laughs> Anyways, um, so we landed on the name Tapestry. And yeah. um, that's the name we wanted to to grow into. Like, you know, not only could we play with the name, like what's on tap, see at the tab, get tapped in. But we really wanted to weave people of diverse mm backgrounds, ethnicity, social strata. And I feel that's the hardest one to weave, to be honest. Yeah. I've also um, been thinking about diversity of age recently. Yeah, like yeah. our church skews young and prayerfully going, okay, Lord, and not for token purposes, but because no, I no, think yeah. that we, we have, I think the family of God's most alive when it, like you said, reflects yeah. the city. And I've been thinking about even that aspect of like, okay, God, what does it mean for us to be like, to represent all these generations that live yeah. in the city? You know, I've been thinking about that a lot too. Yeah, and then that that excites me. It's not just ethnic diversity, but yeah, across the board, right? And when we talk about diversity, it, that can't be the only one. Mm -hmm. But I think if you're creating a place of hospitality and welcome, you'll get people of different age categories, different social strata, um, those that have barriers, you know, everything, right? So yeah. that that's kind of important. So yeah, so we started the first church. Things were going well, and you get to a place where you get to a size where it's like, okay, we're packing up our building. Like, you know, like we're packed out. We have, we don't have any room. We're it's standing room only. So what do we do? And, um, I've always had the passion to plant churches. You know, I'm, uh, my dad planted two churches and, um, I have always felt convicted to do that. And so I was ready. I was, we were ready to plant a church. And what we discovered was, uh, we probably weren't ready and, enough in a sense that, you know, we had the desire and the impetus, but we prayed about it. We didn't know where to plant. A lot of people lived in Richmond. So where do we send people? Uh, we didn't have a infrastructure for that. 
And so what we did was we actually started a second Sunday service, like, you know, so instead of just a 10, we moved to nine and 11. And I don't know what your experience with that um, is, Jason, but that was probably the best thing we ever did. Because you, you get into this multiplying DNA, like every time you multiply something, right, something happens. So if mm. you multiply small groups or you multiply Sunday school teachers or you multiply a worship team or you multiply greeters, you get into this multiplication DNA, which makes it a lot easier to find and equip people mm. uh, into plants. So, yeah, that was one of the things that I'm glad we yeah. did is that we didn't jump into planting right away, but we began to develop some kind of um, rep, rep, reproductive kind of DNA in our congregation, in our church. So. I love the language of DNA because it is like, there's mechanisms and, you know, really practical things when you are multiplying, but there's also a cultural piece of like sending mm -hmm. and making room for others and you know, that, that, there's a whole, and like that, that culture I find is something that has to be at the heart of the whole church, not just the leadership yeah. of the church. Right. And so I can see how that step for you guys began to kind of seed the culture right. amongst the participants in the church of like, oh, like more than just not being comfortable, but like, oh, there's a bit of change and you grieve that yeah. change, right? Like, oh, we had this yeah. nice community and like, okay, but then there's more room, there's more seats, more places to serve. And then there's kind of that, a taste of that as well. Yeah, no, I love that. I think in many ways, in, in order to do macro kind of um, planting, you kind of need the micro kind of um, mm. reproductive planting, that griefing, the grieve of your community is different, but you know it's for a bigger vision and a bigger purpose, right? Mm. I've always said that for us, at least, church planting is the engine of discipleship because it just, it, it creates this liminal space for those that are going, that are being sent out. And, you know, when you're starting something new and there's no one in the seats, you just realize you pray harder, you say yes to more things, you get in yeah. your neighborhood, you do that. But then it creates liminal space in the sending church or the parent church, because all of a sudden all your best have gone. You know, when we planted Tap Nights, which I'll get to, we lost all three of our drummers. It was like... What are we going to do? Like, really, all our drummers decided to move. And so all of a sudden it's like, oh, OK, I guess this guy can drum. And oh, yeah. this guy, this guy is willing to do one week. And like, it's just, you know, if you don't create that need, people just get comfortable mm -hmm. and they they become very participatory. So in many ways, discipleship happens in action, being sent, being pushed, creating liminal space. And sometimes um, church planting does that, right? You just send people out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I yeah. think what I love, what's interesting with your story is you guys were, I've been doing church planting um, within the umbrella of this, of different campuses or a family right. of churches. So in your story, um, what was the first um, different site that you guys were able to initiate? Sure. So one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to do our research, for the lack of a better term. We um, hired a regent student who eventually became an intern at the TAP to actually uh, begin to look at the city of Vancouver to see where there were places that were underchurched as well as demographic change. Because hmm. we, we, there were there's some great churches doing great things, and we want to go to a neighborhood or a pocket where there might be a, a greater need. And so when we began to explore, we recognized two things is that Marpole area, so South Vancouver, 
you know, underchurched to some degree, but, you know, for those of you who live in Vancouver, like the Camby corridor is, and has just gone nuts, right? You mm-hmm. go down Camby and Southwest Marine, and now you drive up Oak or Camby and all this new development. And, you know, they're building something. Omni is always building something, but always. they're building something on 57th and Camby. And we're just like, you know, so what does it look like? So that was number one. And then the second thing is, we realized that a lot of the Richmond youth that grew up or young adults that have graduated, they began to buy places in Vancouver. They began mm. to work downtown. So we realized, okay, they live in Vancouver. They're up and down the Canby Corridor. Some have moved to Marple. So we actually have people that live in that neighborhood or close to that neighborhood. So those two things kind of collided. And we just said, I think Marple is where we plant. So what we did was we were able to um, rent out the Cineplex Odeon at Marine Gateway, a brand new complex with, you know, I don't know how many units, like 400 units above it in various places. And we just did church in the theater. Hmm. And one of the things we did was we decided that, okay, we're going to send 72 people, you know, Luke 10, to covenant with us that they're going to go for at least a year and make Tapestry Marple their church. And we're going to give them some seed money. Here's some. Here's hundred thousand dollars. Have fun. Do what you want to do with it. And um, yeah, there was obviously a lot of um, support and resourcing on our side. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, we we let them play uh, mm. with that. And so what did that, that was Sunday our... feel like when there were seventy two less people in Richmond? Yeah, it it's hard, you know, yeah. because we the people that we sent were some of the people that were there at the very beginning. Mm. So there was a family, um, my, my uh, sister and brother-in-law, in fact, who had helped me plant um, Tapestry Richmond, and they were such an integral part of the church, and now they're going somewhere else. Mm. And we had so many. We had a couple of elders that said, yep, I'm moving over there. You know, it's just... We had these amazing worship leaders that began, yep, we're moving there. So I think not only me, but collectively, there was some grief. There was some, Mm. oh, um, you know, when you lose relationship, right? It's really hard. So, um, yeah, that was hard when we didn't, it wasn't the number per se, because, you know, what we found is that when we created space, 72 other people just replaced them. Mm. But it was a sense of, oh, the relationships we miss. I bet and that that informs your reading of like Paul, like when he's, what you were talking about church in Philippi. And I mean, yeah. he's in prison. There's a lot of emotional things happening for Paul. Yeah. But he, I think I missed it re- reading Paul, like when he goes, I really long to be with you. Or yeah. like, it's like, those are, it's not token. Like he's like, these are. And th- this is in a pre-digital connection world, obviously. Right. Yeah. And but that that sense of I just you mentioned a few times like grief and like like what does it feel like to be ascending people? What does it feel mm. like to be ascending church? It feels like excitement, stories, people come to the Lord. It also feels like grief, missing, longing, yeah. Um, yeah. uncomfortable, change. Yeah. It is, it is certainly a both hand. I think the initial response is one of excitement. Yo, yeah, send, you know, we want to send you. We want to bless you. We want to pray for you. We want to support you. And then, then the grief hits because you realize, oh, they're not here. They're not in my small group. I don't see them anymore. But then when you hear the stories, oh, 
you know, they've got this money in people or, oh, they're doing a baptism or, oh, you know, you see pictures of what's happening. Then you realize, okay, yeah. we're part of a bigger story. We're part of the, uh, the mission of God. We're, we're about, you know, the gospel being spread somewhere else. And so that um, is then also, you know, the grief is still there, but then it's, it's joy and excitement mm. of what's happening. Um, that and also that gives you the impetus of, oh, we could do it again. Like, do you know mm. what I mean? Like um, yeah. after going through that, I was like, okay, let's, let's do this again. Um, oh, I was going to say something that was important. I think for me, I was happy in a sense that being the lead pastor of the Tapestry Church Network, I went to Marple once a month to preach. So I saw these people still. I had relationships with them and so forth. But I don't think that's true for the regular congregation yeah. member. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's what holds us together. Because in many ways, we had thought originally of, okay, we're just going to send them out and not have a relationship. But now that we're you know, a network, now that we're mm -hmm. a multi-site, there's still relationship. There's still we're doing you know, similar things. You know, we, for instance, had sermon series across the board uh, of all our campuses for quite some time, where literally every single person that belonged to the Tapestry Church, regardless of what campus they went to, were literally on the same page. Mm. We were literally studying the same thing. And and that, that, was, that was good. It was a good reminder that we're part of something um, hmm. bigger, you know? Yeah. When did the... Um the work in Coquitlam start for you guys? Yeah. So around the same time where we were approached by a church, 40 years old, maybe 30 people, a lot of them over the age of 65, uh, came to us and started exploring the possibility, hey, you kind of took over Richmond. What does it look like to actually help us? In and they're a CRC church as well? They are the CRC church. Um, and to, uh, you know, um, give us lift. So after a few conversations with their council, they basically asked if we could send two or three families to um, Tapestry, I mean, sorry, to Monday Park Christian Fellowship to give them lift, to give them energy, to, you know, begin to do things uh, that they would want them to do. And uh, I realized that wouldn't solve anything because what they needed was a change of DNA. Uh, mm. What they needed was a rebirth. In fact, I think that um, at least the way I understand things, we Christians are better not at revitalization, but better at resurrection. Mm. And so, you know, what does it mean for something to actually die and out of that life comes out of it? So after all these conversations and after all these things, uh, I said very firmly, you know, the tapestry would love to support you and we still will as much as we can. But um, I think for us to be really part of this, it would be for you to consider what it would mean to actually um, think of rebirth, a restart, beginning mm. again. Um, and so at that time, they decided to leave um, the table. They said, oh, we want to hang on for as long as we can. Yeah. They tried to hire a young seminary student in order to, you know, and churches do that. They hire some poor um, recent grad thinking and giving them the hero um, cape and coming in to rescue them. Um, but they weren't able to find someone. Yeah. So after half a year, they called a meeting and they realized, and I think it was really good for them to realize, what do we really need? Mm -hmm. um, and are we willing to be open-handed? 
and they were ready to move on. And so after a lot of discussion, um, a year of discussion, actually, being very clear about structure, theology, finances, leadership, governance, all of that sort of stuff, that they were comfortable in um, gifting their building and um, becoming uh, one of the Tapestry Church mm. campuses. So beautiful story. And I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and it's absolutely fantastic. Like, it's just this beautiful, very diverse uh, little community where you can tell people really like each other. Wow. Uh, yeah, it's it's just a great, great thing that happens. And just Some a little- of the community from the original congregation still participating? Here's the amazing thing. So when we um, took over Richmond, um, there were still, you know, 30 people of that, of the old church that, you know, was still going there. Only one couple out of, you know, 15 couples or 30 people decided to stay. Mm. The reverse happened in Coquitlam, where everyone previously at Monday Park Christian Fellowship, except for one family, has stayed. Wow. What, what do you think the difference is? I, I think... Probably in many ways, and I'll try to be honest, is that in Richmond, it felt like the denomination was planting the church and the church had to come alongside. It really wasn't something that they owned or decided on. Mm. And there was a lot of grief and doubt and um, skepticism about what we were doing. And I think that, you know, 10 years later or 12 years later, they began, you know, we have some street cred now, like we, mm -hmm. we've, we've done some things, uh, but also the realization of, okay, um, we can be open-handed. This can be a gospel thing happening. And we as a congregation are the ones that are deciding mm -hmm. to, to do this yeah. and not the denomination. And I'm, I'm a big fan and proponent that churches plant churches, not denominations. Mm. Uh, and so for this church to be all anonymously approving, we want to be part of this, we're going to stay here and be involved, that says something. And in fact, so much so, and I would not advise this for anyone when it comes to mergers, but the two last pastors of the previous church in Coquitlam, they stayed and were members of that congregation. And they modeled what it meant to be a member, not a pastor, and mm. they were so encouraging of the change that was happening, and wow. they helped obviously in that transition, which is that's big. Really, that's yeah. really special. I mean, that's yeah. um, that's really, really rare and really special. Yeah, Albert, what's happening for you on this whole ride? Like, it's one thing to have to to end up in a city, plant a church in your living room, with all that sort of there's the excitement and risk and bursting vision. And then there's just these cycles we go through as pastors that are our own vision tank can feel empty. There's crises that emerge only after a couple of years and there's entrenched ideas. And, mm. and so I know that concurrent to a growing church and new ventures, there's always the parallel story of our hearts and our own growing as a leader and our own facing our shadow side. And just curious what reflections you have um, as you reflect on this season of ministry, um, what God was doing in you and how he was using the crucible of leading a church to form you and shape you. Yeah. Um, church planting is hard. 
And anyone that says anything otherwise is lying to you. It is very um, consuming. It is very, um, it's so wrapped up in your identity. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, you're giving birth to something and it's just, and we you pretend know, your like it's not our identity, but how can you not it, feel exactly like it's, it's so much you and as much as, yeah, it's a God thing. It's so much as it wrapped around your own success and your own kind of, um, yeah, your, your own identity and issues and, and self and, and all of that, you know, when a, when a church, um, succeeds, it's like, oh, Albert did a great job. Or, or no, no, when the church succeeds, it's, oh, God was all through in that. But if it fails, it's like, oh, Albert didn't Albert. do a good job. <laughs> you know, like, you know That's what I so mean? good, man. That's so good. <laughs> and we so do that true, in our own right? heads too, right? Yeah, We're yeah, like, well, exactly. It couldn't be the Lord shrinking this church. The only <laughs> no, no, person to no, this me. <laughs> That's right. So if it goes well, God is great. If it doesn't go well, uh, Albert didn't listen to God or just something to that effect. Sure. So there was just this enormous pressure. And out of that, um, yeah, part of that was, you know, bad boundaries when it called into time, when it, you know, like even when I'm home and I had a, I had a two young kids at home, I wasn't really at home. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I'm just ruminating over things and stuff like this. And, you know, um, I don't need to get into all the details and stuff, but, um, you know, uh, my wife at the time, married me as a grad student, not a pastor, and had a crisis of faith and, you know, uh, left the faith and didn't want to be part of the church anymore. And mm. so, you know, and I did not help with just not being present as much as I um, should have been. And so as a result of that, um, three years into the church plant, um, I got divorced. And at the time, it was painful, it was difficult, and I had a letter of resignation ready to mm. hand to my leadership team and saying, okay, uh, I'm done. And out of that, my, my board, my leaders said, Albert, you did nothing wrong, you tried your best, you know, take some time off, but we want you to come back and be our pastor. Wow. And I think that felt like, for me at least, a resurrection for the lack of a better term, but mm. a second chance to do things differently. Mm. And I came back with a very different perspective with making sure I did self-care, making sure I did retreats, making sure I held my Sabbath like nobody's business. Um, yeah. Um, I think one of the hardest things for leaders, especially church planters, is always about setting limits. Um, and I needed to set limits. It was unhealthy. And I think that negative, that, that hard time, you know, not to say that's the best thing that happened because, you know, there's grief and there's pain and there's loss of relationships. So, but I felt in some ways that was out of that pain, I was able to grow and realize the call and the pastor and the leader that I needed to be. Mm. Um, which wasn't um, the one who was working tirelessly, the one that had an agenda that, yeah, I think out of that was I needed more self-care. I needed more companionship with other people mm. to talk things through, um, other peers to talk with, um, the need for daily exercise, at least for me. All of those care things which are so crucial in order to, to lead well. And um, yeah, so for the pastors listening in on this, 
Yeah. Um, yeah. Self-care is such a crucial thing, right? Mm. It's just, yeah, you can't, you can't be who you God, who God called you to be unless you're attentive to God and the spirit. And we're not going to do that if we're just too busy and not having mm. our eyes open and mm. to scripture and to time and all of that. Anyways. Yeah. I so appreciate you sharing that with us. And I wonder if like you talk about this, this rebirth and entering into ministry. And it's almost like what I hear you saying, like the way you related to the ministry changed and also how you held it yeah. almost like any more language you can put to that. Because I think that's, there's something there that's hard yeah. for us to talk about as pastors, which is how we, because we know we're not, we know our identities in Christ, not in our mm-hmm. achievements. And we know, but like, I think we're just human. We're so prone to certain re- relationships with the things that we care about. And we, and so I just would love to hear a, a bit of your reflection of how you, how you related maybe differently, not you, mm. you expressed some habits of, of care, but even just in your heart. And as you held this thing that you still were investing in and cared about, yeah, how did you relate to that differently? Yeah, I, I loved your image there of, you know, uh, clenched fists and open-handedness. I think there's something to that in terms of mm-hmm. how we approach ministry, but even how we approach church. You know, I remember the first three years, you know, I would just, I would come in and I would notice everything. Like that door's open or why is that happening? Or why are we singing this song? And, oh, that's too loud. Like I was just so um, particular about everything and I never worshiped. Like, I didn't even come close to it, right? Mm. I was just, you know, I was, you know, um, making sure everything ran. And I think out of that, maybe because it felt like I've got a second chance, there was an open-handedness, a kind of like, God, do your thing. Um, this church is yours. It's not mine. It's, if this church fails, I'm okay with it. I can, I'll be okay with it. There's, th- there's a turn to it where maybe my identity wasn't wrapped up around the church so much that I didn't have to be there. I can just trust in the other people that have been called to leadership there, and I can trust what God's doing. Mm. So, you know, a lot of pastors have FOMO, right? They just, they, they, they have to be there, and they, they have this great fear of missing out. I have something called JOMO, which is the joy of missing out. Like, it's just the best thing ever. <laughs> if I don't have to be there... And I hear these stories of success and, and, you know, when, when someone comes up to me and goes, you know, the sermon that I heard last Sunday, which I didn't preach. So, you know what, the sermon that so-and-so preached last Sunday was so good. It was the best I've ever heard. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) And so instead of going, oh, okay, it's, oh, that's so good to hear. That's amazing. Like, do you know what I mean? It's just, Yeah. yeah, like... It's giving up ownership. It's giving up, I don't know, something. But uh, mm. that was a that was a shift for sure that I recognized and I noticed. And I think that has actually really helped because in our model, uh, in terms of multi-sites and stuff like this, that we ha- each campus has a campus pastor and they're the primary leader. They're basically the lead pastor of that site. They're the primary preacher. They do, they lead the team, you know, and I come in and I, you know, I mentor a little, I coach all the campus pastors get together every two weeks just to pray and to talk business and so forth. 
but they're the they're they're the ones and i just kind of um build the frame of which they can play in this mm. sandbox they can play in and i don't know if i could have allowed that you know being the you know entrepreneurial kind of person that i am if that didn't happen where i'm like mm. yeah i i'm yeah i'm sad to say that i i probably was a lousy um person who didn't celebrate other people's wins as well as i could have mm. and uh yeah i i can say wholeheartedly um nothing gives me greater joy because yeah you you take these pastors and you 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 help them and mentor and coach and disciple and when they succeed it's there's no better feeling there's mm. oh there's no better feeling yeah do, do you have any reflections on what you've learned or are learning about releasing and empowering emerging pastors or even experienced pastors because there's there's sort of an art to that of yeah um providing oversight and care and boundaries but also that really releasing um, and I think it's something that I'm, I'm personally thinking a lot about and would love to know any reflections or learnings you have through that. Yeah, I, I think that in many ways, um, the, you know, you can talk about high trust and high accountability and that, that sort of language and stuff. And yeah, coinciding with that is there's a lot of freedom to do what they need to do because there's a lot of trust that I have on them. But in many ways, there's some accountability structures that need to take place because you can't do one without the other. You know mm. what I mean? Yeah. So tell me more, though. Thing. That's really helpful. Like, so it's like, I think that's a helpful framework. It's like it's accountability and trust are not mutually exclusive, obviously. Yes, they actually that's right. can can support one another. Tell me more about that. Yeah. And I wish I had a better way of putting it because, you know, there are some people that do this so well where they have an accountability structure and all of this sort of thing. And for me, uh, it has always been about uh, relationship and time. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, I'm feeling a discontent after taking this position at St. Andrews where we began. So, you know, I'm, I'm that's the thing I've lamented in this busy season. I just spent less time with other leaders and other people. But I feel like so much of that is um, relational and intuitive in some mm -hmm. ways. It's just mm -hmm. connecting, you know, regularly and say, hey, what's going on? Where, what are you trying new? What, where, are, what are you anxious about? How do I pray for you? Where you're keeping people accountable in some ways, you know, how's your Sabbath, all that kind of stuff. But you're not doing it in a and, and uh, a reporting way and a whatever way is just this ongoing relationship, which mm. uh, I've missed because we, we had that before the pandemic and also before this new role. But that's something I value. And for anyone who's leading staff, you know, you need to have some kind of reporting structure. But I just found like the accountable, the, the reporting structures I didn't even need to if there was regular connection and conversation of knowing mm. what they were doing um, quite regularly. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's this ongoing mentoring and coaching, uh, which I really like. Um, yeah. So one of our um, campus pastors recently went on parental leave. And so the associate pastor has um, 
uh, needed uh, uh, a staff meeting every week. So she comes in and we, uh, for an hour plus, and we go through what has to, what, you know, we look back at what happened the previous week, we look forward. And then um, we just talk about, you know, ministry stuff. And she always asks me a question, you know, like, uh, you know, how do you lead meetings or like just those kind of conversations, this on the spot, in the moment kind of uh, conversations and coaching Mm-hmm. are invaluable mm-hmm. and um i realized in doing that that i've missed doing that mm. uh, in the last six weeks so yeah that that's a, a cool credit to her as a, yes. an, a leader saying i'm not going to waste moments with albert like i'm going to sneak some <laughs> questions there and it's a credit yes. to you that you, you you there's enough time even i know you feel attention but there's that there's a an accessibility there because i think that picture of like um there's so much of ministry that I think are, I think one of our main ways of developing leaders in the church has been like trial by fire, mm. and and it's it you can grow that way, but you end up also with sometimes scars, and sometimes oh, yeah. you make it on the other side. And but there is something that's like the other extreme is like reading it all in a book. And the beautiful thing is to complement study and care with being on the ground doing the ministry with people who are more experienced and care about right. you. And that yeah. sweet sort of that space Spot. that yeah. there's no perfect way to do it. Like you can no. romanticize that, but there's something right. there in that picture. Even just as you described sure. that conversation, I thought that's pretty special. Yeah. And I'm, don't get me wrong. I'm all in favor for trial by fire. <laughs> but, <laughs> you you like, live some you, of it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, that that's always the best teacher when you just try it. Right. And you realize it's, you know, it's, it didn't work out and stuff, but the difference between trial by fire is doing it alone mm. and doing it with support. Yeah. And so when there's support and conversation and feedback, uh, that makes the difference, right? When That's you do so something good. all alone with not reporting to anyone, not sharing what's going on, not being prayed for beforehand or after or during, and uh, that that's the difficult part. Mm. But when you have someone's like, oh, you know, I'm with you. I'm going to pray about it. Oh, how did it go? Uh, how, what do we learn from this? Um, that changes things, doesn't it? Mm, yeah. So much. Well, I've loved this time together. I'm so grateful for you, Albert, and um, grateful that for the work you've been doing at Tapestry, but also the way that you're now being able to give that away more broadly through the work you're doing at St. Andrew's Hall and uh, grateful that we get to be pastors in the same city and cheering each other on. And thanks for making time to share with all of our listeners and us today on the podcast. Oh, great. And my pleasure. It was, uh, I don't see you enough, Jason. I know. It's the, this is the weird thing. We have to schedule, we have to schedule podcasts for us yes, to have a good right. solid catch up. So, <laughs> that's right. So if I don't see you anytime soon, I'll book you for next year. And that's yeah, how that we'll get a good, good catch up. <laughs> awesome. Well, a big thank you to Albert for taking the time to be with us and for giving your life to see the gospel spread and take root in this corner of our nation. As someone who has called the Lower Mainland home for all of my life, I am deeply grateful for life-giving churches like the Tapestry and people like yourself who do so much to see them thrive. Before we go, I want to express gratitude to a few people who helped make this episode happen. Thanks to Josh Thompson for arranging the interview, Jason for facilitating that time with Albert, and to Rachel Sousa and Will Lee for adding their voice and touch in putting together the episode. 
If you've personally been impacted by our work at CCLN, whether it be through this podcast or our gatherings or other resources, or maybe you're just listening in and you're passionate about the church in Canada, we'd love you to consider joining our giving community. All of what we do at CCLN is made possible by generous individuals, churches, and organizations who want to see the Canadian church be all that it can be. So just head to ccln.ca slash give to make a one-time donation or to set up a regular one. And if you're a senior pastor and you want to take it a step further, we want to invite you to learn more about what it means to become a partner church at ccln.ca slash churchpartners. Thanks for considering joining us as we come alongside pastors. Well, thank you for listening. We are so deeply encouraged by this growing audience of humble pastors and leaders that we're seeing formed across our nation. We have so much love and gratitude in our hearts for you. Now, Lord bless you as you step into what he has you stewarding this week. Bye for now. 